Welcome to the Jesus on Prophecy audio resource for the Monroe, Michigan site. Here you will find all the messages from the Jesus on Prophecy series. If these messages are a blessing to you, please share them with your friends and family. We pray all of these resources will encourage you to study God's Word as never before. looking at six keys that can help you and I um, navigate this book that for many people the book title may have been should have been mystery or confusion but actually it God called it revelation for a reason and tonight we're going to be looking at how we can begin to understand and make sense is one of the most brilliantly written books which gives evidence that it was a mind beyond that of a human being that inspired it so please allow one more prayer, if you would, please, before we begin. Father, I am incapable of expressing this. doesn't matter how much intelligence a human being possesses. These are spiritual things, and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So, Father, once again, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide this evening. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen, Father. Uh, you may not be familiar with the name, but how many of you guys have ever played with the Rubik's Cube? And you may have wondered, why in the world did they call it Rubik, right? Now you know. It was named after its inventor, Rubik's, um, Erno Rubik, who actually, when he invented it, he didn't know how to solve it. <laughs> he discovered how to create this toy, and that once he finagled it enough where the colors were all over the place, he couldn't put it back together. And so it took him months to figure out how to do it. And there is a system to the madness I play with it, and how many of you guys have been able to get one side, oh, yeah. right? But then that's where we're stuck, because we, just when we get the other color, the one color we got, it starts to fall apart, right? And that's when it is up in the shelf, right? Uh, my daughter got excited with it. We bought one for her, and it's somewhere in her drawers now. Uh, but uh, being the kind of person I am, I like to figure out things. And of course, we live in day and age that if you want to figure out anything, you go to YouTube, right? And I went there, and there you can actually find the steps to solve the Rubik's Cube yourself, and you can memorize them. Uh, there's a kid, Collins Burns, a 15-year-old, who several years ago was able to solve the Rubik's Cube, and those are seconds, by the way, 5.253 seconds. So, yep, so there is a way to solve it. And he talks about it in a video, and when he was asked, is it hard? He said, it's not difficult. If you understand what? The design. And that's how I was able to figure out how to, uh, the, the pieces don't float around randomly. Um, the center pieces never move. They're fixed. So this side will always only be green. This side will only, always be orange. This side will only always be white. Um, so the center pieces don't move. And only, the only ones that move are the corners and the edges. And you can watch the YouTube video. I'm not going to try to figure out Ruby's Cube tonight. Um, we're going to have, we have something way better tonight to try to figure out. But the point is this. Something that to me seemed mysterious for decades, I went to YouTube and I realized there is steps. That if you follow the steps, and I remember the first time I did it, I almost got teary-eyed. This happened like six months ago. It wasn't like too long ago. I'm 46 and I finally cracked the Rubik's Cube. 
And when I started doing it, I, I have to tell you this, I did not see it coming. I was just watching the lady telling me do this and turn to right this and turn left there. And, and the next thing you know, she says, you're done. And I look at it and it was done. I didn't even know how I got it. Don't ask me how I did it. I had to rewind the video to do it again. And I'm learning the steps. I'm learning the steps. So tonight, we're going to be looking at the six keys that God left in his word. These are not in anyone, any human being's keys. God left within the book of Revelation the keys to unlock its mysteries. So we're going to be looking at that tonight. This is what many people see when they look at the book of Revelation Scary imagery, earthquakes, famines, plagues, blood, beasts, horns. Um, but really, if you understand the core of the book, it becomes simple. The book of Revelation is not about beasts, plagues, or earthquakes. The book of Revelation begins like this. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. That is the core purpose for this book. It's not designed to scare us. If anything, it's designed, it was written, the very first part of it is, the, is, is um, an appeal to have this letter read to all these seven churches in Asia. This book was designed to be read to the Christian churches, to fill them with hope, to correct their wrongs, and to infuse them with energy for the mission. And the purpose of the book has not changed. What we have failed at is learning the keys of interpreting it correctly, the way God intended us to do so. So there in, it, just like a completed Rubik's Cube, once we learn and begin to apply the keys to unlock the book of Revelation, I felt so happy when I saw that. I, did, I told my girls, don't touch it. <laughs> Daddy has just solved this. <laughs> let me boast a little bit. <laughs> at least let mom look at it, because you won't believe me. <laughs> and I kept it alone, but then I got bored. I'm like, I have to, so I took it apart. Because you have to do it over and over again, correct? Yeah. So just because we will learn these keys tonight doesn't mean that we'll be able to figure out everything in just one night. Um, it's a process that you'll learn. And I'm glad Jim introduced me as a student of the Bible, and I have yet to graduate. I am still a student of the Bible. So I pray that I am in the company of other students as well, that with humility... One of the things that I discovered early on is one of the key ingredients in a person's heart to understand this book is humility. The moment people start boasting about their PhDs and degrees and all those things, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So let us look at the book of Revelation. If we do it right, if we interpret the book of Revelation right, we would see different pictures of Jesus that reveal how awesome, how wonderful, and how worthy of our worship he is. If you were coming up with something else, we are not interpreting the book of Revelation correctly. If by the time we're done studying it, we have this fear of condemnation and fear of God, we've interpreted it incorrectly, is the revelation of Jesus. And the Jesus in the book of Revelation is the same Jesus found in the four Gospels. Jesus uh, declares himself to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So we should see a consistent picture. So here are the six keys to unlock the book of Revelation. Uh, the ones in red are the ones that we're going to look at tonight. We don't have time to cover all of them in depth. Um, the book of Revelation, the, one of the first key is that the book is symbolic. The second key is that it has major use of the Old, Old Testament and the New Testament as well. It has ordered structures. 
It is not chaotic. It is not a cacophony of imagery thrown here and there. There is an order to the book. And once you begin to discover this order of the book, you'll be amazed at how much sense it begins to make. It's Christ-centered. All the prophecies need to be interpreted through Jesus Christ. It is rich in sanctuary image, imagery. It has uh, pertinent historical applications. And tonight, we're going to be spending time looking at what does it mean that the book is symbolic. Actually, the book itself tells us the revelation of Jesus Christ. I forgive the, the fonts. It got squished up like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you still read it? Is that okay? All right. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show him to show his servants, and he sent, and that squished word right there, uh, signified it by his angel to his servant John. And that word signified is it's, it's translated correctly. A synonym, a very direct synonym, is symbolized, is given in signs, is given in symbolic language. So the book of Revelation is rich in symbolic language. So the first principle is to assume the scenes and actions portrayed in the book of Revelation are what? Symbolic in nature, unless the context clearly indicates that a literal meaning is intended. Um, let's just apply this right now. The book of Revelation begins with the Apostle John. Is he literal or symbolic? It's literal. He says that he's in this island called Patmos because he's been imprisoned for preaching the Word of God. Is the island of Patmos symbolic or literal? Literal. literal. And then we will read about beasts with seven heads and ten horns. Is that literal or symbolic? And God doesn't make it so, oh, is that real or not? It is obvious when he's talking about something symbolic, and it is obvious and clear when the book of Revelation is talking about something literal. But what dominates the book of Revelation are not literal imagery, but symbolic. So for individuals that expect, you know, horses that have fire coming out of their mouth with women hairs and scorpion tails, if you've read the book of Revelation, you may have read those passages. Those are not, are those literal? No, no not even in Chernobyl, right? We see animals looking like that. So we, we cannot uh, abuse or misuse. This first principle will help you not get lost in the woods. The book is symbolic. And the way that it's interpreted is in the second key. Um, sources of the revelation of the, the symbolic language is Old and New Testament, which is key number two. The book of Revelation is saturated. Listen carefully. It is saturated with imagery from the Old Testament. It's not just drawn imagery that John decided to just pull out of thin air. I'll give you a few examples. There's many more that we will look at throughout the series. Revelation chapter 2, it has reference to two individuals, Balaam and Jezebel. You know where in the Bible those two characters are found? In the Old Testament. In Revelation chapter 11, you have references to Moses and Elijah. You know where those characters are found? In the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 12 has references to the Garden of Eden. Revelation 16 to the plagues of Ex in the book of Exodus. Revelation 18 has references to Babylon. All throughout the book of Revelation, you have this continual usage of the Old Testament which I am so happy to hear other brothers and sisters, other pastors from other denominations, starting to reject this notion that for decades we're being preached from the pulpit, that the Old Testament is for the Jews, the New Testament is for the Christian. Have you guys ever heard that? Yeah. Now, I'm glad you haven't, because it's not true. The Bible says that all Scripture is profitable, Old and New Testament. 
But because Christians, not all, thankfully, but some Christians began to hear this notion, there was a disregard of study of the Old Testament and a stronger emphasis in studying the New Testament. Therefore, when individuals would come to the book of Revelation, their lack of familiarity with the Old Testament made it very difficult for them to interpret the symbols correctly. And so instead of looking at the Old Testament for these symbols, they would look at the news. They would look at Facebook and say, oh, that's got to be that thing. That looks like that's in. We don't interpret the Bible by the news. Amen? I'm going to tell you throughout this whole series, we interpret the Bible by using the Bible itself. God has left for us a self-contained revelation so that you can check when someone else says it is like this, go back to the Bible and compare and read through its pages and the Holy Spirit will guide us to see that this book is one unified, a piece of beautiful, beautiful revelation of God. So the Old Testament is clearly throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, some scholars have done some counting. Uh, we know that the book is divided into 22 chapters, 404 verses. Out of the 404 verses, 300 plus verses contain references or allusions to the Old Testament. That's over 75% of the book. And if I am not familiar with the Old Testament, I mean, have you ever sat down for an exam and you only knew 25% of it? How did you feel about knowing only 25% of the exam? And maybe that's why so many Christians, when they read the book of Revelation, they get lost in it because they don't recognize that 75% of it has been mentioned in the book of, in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation makes clear use of all of that. It is safe to conclude that at least 75% of the book of Revelation needs to be understood and interpreted by relying on the history and characters of the Old Testament. So tonight, I'm a very practical individual. Before I was a pastor, I was a nurse. And before I was a pastor, I was a massage therapist. So I'm very hands-on. And so I, I like to try things out real quick. So tonight, we're going to look at the appeal for Revelation of it being symbolic and having Old Testament. We're not going to interpret these things, but we're simply going to apply the principles. Um, before we do so, the book of Revelation has a promise and an invitation. Blessed is he who does what? reads. Doesn't, you don't have to even understand. It just says, you'll be blessed if you read it. Don't worry if you don't understand everything, but you will be blessed if you read it. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is a threefold blessing that the book of Revelation offers right off the bat. This is the third verse. We're going to be reading the book of Revelation, so we can expect this to be a reality for us even tonight. We're going to be blessed. But the blessing will not be complete until we hear and in the book of Revelation, Jesus says this to every single of the seven churches. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus is not speaking about your auditory ability. Jesus is speaking about your heart. Are you willing to hear? You know, I have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old. And they are starting to realize that mommy and daddy don't just want them to hear we don't just want them to tell us, I heard you to pick up my socks. That's not enough. If you want to make daddy happy, don't you say, I heard you, daddy, to pick up my socks. What will make the happiness of, of daddy complete? If they do it. And that's why he finishes with, and those who do what? Keep those things. Let me tell you that the book of Revelation changes life. It has changed my life. And it continues to change my life. So, 
If, you, if we're going to read its pages, we're going to feel the Holy Spirit who inspired this book to higher ground, to deeper commitments, to a deeper longing to be with our Lord. So um, the appeal right off the bat is to read the book of Revelation straight through. Do not attempt to, in, to interpret it. Just become familiar with its content. And of course, the invitation from the book of Revelation itself is you have to read the Old Testament and the New Testament through at least once. The more familiar you and I become with the Old Testament and the New Testament, the better understanding we will have of the book of Revelation. Revelation is like the pot that takes all the Old Testament carrots and potatoes and turnips and broccolis and all that stuff and makes this nice, delicious stew that is made up. I'm a little hungry. I kind of skipped supper tonight. Maybe all my illustrations will be related to food. But that's the book of Revelation. Revelation is the most succulent, nutritious book of the Bible because it is the concentration of everything God has revealed for over a thousand years. So it's a very rich book. It has not, never been exhausted and never will be. We will continue studying it. So application of these two keys, like I said, tonight we're not going to necessarily interpret things, but we're going to apply, how, how do we use this now, Pastor? How do we apply the fact that it is a symbolic book and that it uses the Old Testament? Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. This has been one of the simplest places where I felt at least we can apply this principle. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Is this literal or symbolic? Symbolic. You see that, right? It's not hard. But I've highlighted certain words because I want you to pay attention to these words because they're special for tonight's purpose. I saw a beast rising up out of where? The sea. He had how many heads? And ten horns. Pay attention to those details, okay? And pay attention to these last ones. Now, the beast, which I saw, was like a what kind of animal? A leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Like I said, we will be looking at this passage this weekend. Saturday evening, we're going to be looking at this because this is related to the Antichrist. But we've already defined that this is not a literal beast, but a symbolic one. The second key to understanding the book of Revelation says that most of the book of Revelation comes from what part of the Bible? What part of the Bible? Old Testament. Where, could, where should we look for a beast that comes out of the sea, that has a total of seven heads, ten horns, that is composed of a leopard, a bear, and a lion? Some of you guys are Bible students. In fact, Jesus tells us we should be looking at a special place in the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus, when he gives glimpses of the end times, he gives instructions to his church. There's a book you should spend time studying. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by who, my friends? Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place. And this is encouraging. This is more, more, more than a command. This is a promise by Jesus. Whoever reads, let him understand. Jesus wants us to understand. And he will help us understand. So the book of Revelation has one of, one of a special source in the Old Testament, and that is the book of 
Daniel the prophet. And that's precisely where we need to go to understand that beast in Revelation chapter 13. Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 7 says, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like what animal? A lion, and suddenly another beast, a second one, like a what animal? After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, and it had ten horns. And I didn't put it on the slide because I didn't want to have too, I didn't have enough room for it. But this leopard has four heads. What's four plus three? Seven. If you take all of the beast's heads and you join them together, you end up with a beast, you end up with seven heads. And then you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, and ten horns. Where did we see these exact same symbols being used? Revelation, what chapter? So this is the key. Before we even try to interpret Revelation 13, we should spend time and figure out who these beasts are. Because if we can come to understand who these beasts are in the Old Testament, then we can take those interpreted meanings and then bring them to the book of Revelation, and it will make perfect sense. And we will do that this Saturday evening. I hope you'll be able to come here. This is what we see in the, in the two uh, books. In Daniel chapter 7, we see a lion, a bear, a leopard, a beast, and ten horns. But in Revelation 13, we see a beast with ten horns, a leopard, a bear, a lion. Do you see a pattern? Now, it's like Daniel is looking forward into history, but the book of Revelation is looking backwards. And they're describing the same lineage of events. Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7 go together like peanut butter and jelly. If you want to understand Revelation 13, you have to understand Daniel, what chapter? 7. So, are these hard keys? Just like the Rubik's Cube. I thought for decades, I'm not even buying that toy. It's going to make my brain explode and like my brain. But someone said, I saw a 15-year-old on YouTube say, it's easy. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> but then I tried it. It is not that hard. And once we discovered the keys that the book of Revelation itself has left, understanding the book of Revelation becomes exciting because you begin to actually understand it correctly because you'll be interpreting it not through the changing news but through the ever lasting word of God, unchanging word of God. So let's take a break. <laughs> All of my churches that I've ever pastored, the church planted, the church that I planted in Columbus, Ohio, they all have one thing in common. They know that I love pizza. I've gotten older. I've had to watch out because of cholesterol, but I still love pizza. How many of you guys like pizza? Amen. <laughs> We're going to become good friends. Um, I'm not going to ask you tonight, what do you like on your pizza? I'm sure we have all sorts of varieties. I even know some people that put a ranch dressing on it. We can get quite creative with a pizza. But at the end of the day, I've tried all sorts of pizzas. But at the end of the day, New York style thin crust cheese pizza, it's, it's, that's for me. That's for me. Uh, what Italian people would call a pizza, I like a pizza. Um, 
and a pizza has a, a standard pizza, what are the three main ingredients for it? The crust, the sauce, and the cheese, right? Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin cheese. It has to be good. Um, that one has a little bit of extra stuff. But you know, uh, you can have good cheese, but if you don't have anything to put it on, it'll just be splattering all over the tray. And the sauce, you can have the sauce and the cheese, but you need a foundation for a pizza. You need a platform upon which to put that delicious sauce and that melted cheese. And that platform is what? The crust, the dough. Now, I'm going to tell you that Daniel chapter 2 is God's prophetic crust. And the reason I'm using this is that next time you eat pizza, I want you to think you need to read the book of Revelation. You need to read the book of Daniel. As you mm, that's right, I got to read the book of Daniel. You can read the book of Daniel and eat your pizza. Praise the Lord. It's awesome. Involve all the senses. Um, and you understand what I'm trying to say by this? The book of Daniel, Jesus tells us to study it. And the first prophecy that is given in the book of Daniel is actually found in Daniel chapter 2. Listen carefully. Daniel chapter 2 is the template by which all other prophecies become interpreted. Daniel chapter 2 is that platform upon which all the other prophecies will get built. God wants us to call him our father. And any father that has had children, how many times did you have to explain to your child how to tie their shoelaces? How many times have you had to explain to them not to wipe the things that come out of their noses on the wall, right? <laughs> or to hand them to you. Our, my, my youngest daughter hands them to her. We're like, what is this? And, oh, what did you tell me? You know, after you, you, you oh, I know what it is now. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, and we've told her by now over a hundred times. So it's not, it's no exaggeration. It's not a symbolic statement when parents said, if I've told you once, I've told you. That's a quite literal statement I've come to discover. God repeats. God repeats, and God repeats. But when he repeats, he expands. He repeats, and he expands. He takes us step by step. But the foundation is Daniel what chapter? <coughs> chapter 2. That is the prophetic template for every other prophecy. And we will spend time this evening, the rest of this evening, looking at this prophecy so that we now can begin the rest of the series with a solid biblical prophetic foundation. Daniel chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. And these individuals still exist today. I remember driving through Detroit, and I see individuals that read poems, and I read your tarot cards, and I'm going to tell you right now, that is not God's preferred way to direct your life. And I'm going to encourage you to not go to those places. Um, God has a better place to direct your life. It's called His Word. And tonight you'll see how God actually cares for each of our lives individually. So these individuals were not able to do this. We'll see that in just a bit. They answered, the king, answered and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give it what? 
interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew he had a bad dream. His pillow was across the room. All the blankets was out of his bed. He was distressed, woke up in a sweat, but he could not remember what he dreamt. All he knew is that what he dreamt made his blood pressure go up. He lost his appetite. He couldn't stop trying to figure out what I dreamt. And these individuals are telling him, well, when you tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. If you do not make known the dream to me, it responds to King Nebuchadnezzar, there's only one decree for you. Therefore, tell me the dream. And if you can tell me the dream, I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The king starting to become furious. You are on my paid salary. And when I need you most right now, you're failing me. Now, if you fail at me at this, it's not that you'll get fired. You are going to get, you don't worry about your retirement. <laughs> the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except who? And here's the problem, king. The gods, their dwelling is not with humans. That is a key statement in Daniel chapter 2. The belief of these, these were not just astrologers. These were the theologians. These were the philosophers. These were the people that were explaining to the rest of the nation how to interpret reality. And in their minds, their full conviction was that they were not atheists. They believed that gods existed, but they believed that these gods had nothing to do with the human race. They do not. Their dwelling is not with humanity. And that is one of the core reasons why God gave this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't just to trouble the king. It wasn't just to give him insomnia or trouble him. There was a deeper reason as to why God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream. If this dream from God could be known and interpreted, it could completely revolutionize their understanding of God and His character. This prophecy would prove that God can and wants to dwell with humans. God cares about human affairs, that we are not alone in the universe, that we have a God that can and desires to dwell with the human race. These theologians, these brilliant individuals, when they came to us describing, what about the gods? Oh, they're powerful, they're mighty, they know the future, but they don't want nothing to do with us. The last place they want to be is down here with us. The king orders to have all the wise men killed. As they begin, they come to Daniel, who was not present at this encounter, and Daniel makes a request to ask God, and he is granted time. So he prays. And the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel points out the astrologers could not truthfully reveal the future, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He points not to himself, but to the God who knows the future and desires to reveal it to us. And tonight, my friends, that's the place I want to point you to. I want, you to point, I want to point you tonight that there is a God in heaven who knows not just the future of humanity in general, he knows your future. And he has beautiful, wonderful plans for you. He wants something amazing, and this prophecy will reveal it to us tonight. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. 
This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. And here's the image. Its head was made of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as Daniel is recounting the image in detail, this entire courtroom is in dead silence. This was a slave. They had taken him prisoner from Jerusalem to Babylon. They had assumed, because we conquered Jerusalem, our gods are mightier than their god. But here we are with our gods completely silent when it comes to interpreting this dream. But a Jewish slave, his God has given him the interpretation. And all the astrologers and all the magicians are looking at Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is just nodding with his mouth open. That's the dream. Who is this God? The imagery described in such great detail, it was no generalities that Nebuchadnezzar could not but acknowledge, I need to pay attention to what this man, young man is telling me. You watch with a while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. It's not just a statue in the dream, but now the attention focuses on this stone. And this stone comes and hits the image where? In the feet. Good, I was tricking you. I used to be a teacher too. You were paying attention. Follow the Bible, not the pastor. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> the image gets hit in the feet, but the whole image falls apart. And God says, this is what's going to happen. We're just describing the dream right now, Nebuchadnezzar. We're just describing what you dreamt. These were all the imagery that took place in your mind. Now we're going to be looking at what it meant. And the stone that struck in the image became a great mountain and filled how much? The whole earth. This is the dream. And because I've told you the dream, you can trust the interpretation. What does this dream mean? You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. You are this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was king of what empire? Babylon. And Babylon is, is fitting for the symbol of this metal of gold. Uh, some of the seven wonders of the world were found in Babylon, the Hanging Gardens. It was a beautiful city to behold. Uh, two friends of mine, Chris and Christy Hamster, were recently in Berlin. And they went to the museum, and they got to see the Ishtar Gate, which was the gate entering into Babylon. And even though it's centuries old and all the decrepit and all the gold, of course, has been pulled out of the gate, it still looks magnificent. And if it looked magnificent, all broken and busted up the way it looks now, imagine what it looked when it was brand new. This was a beautiful empire, fitting for the imagery of gold. Nebuchadnezzar likes that. I am that head of gold. Speak on, Daniel. You are the set of gold, but the interpretation gets sour for the king real quick. But after you shall arise another kingdom, not superior, 
this grandiose kingdom of yours is not going to be conquered by someone bigger or stronger than you. Actually, the kingdom that's going to conquer you is going to be what? That, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like the interpretation. But he can't gainsay it, he cannot deny it, because the dream was hidden, and this young man is telling the dream, and the interpretation must be true as well. He continues with describing this. Um, Media and Persia are the next uh, kingdoms, and they're found in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. Your kingdom has been given to the Medes and Persians. That's found in Daniel chapter 5, 18 and 31. Daniel was there the night Babylon fell, and he names the empire by name that would follow Babylon. So I'm not interpreting this by an encyclopedia or a historic book of history. The Bible itself gives us the names first of Babylon and now the kingdom that would follow um, Babylon, Medes and the Persians. It just so happens that what God predicted in Daniel chapter 2 is what the history books tells us actually happened. God was telling Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and the entire Babylonian court the future in advance for a reason. After the Medes and the Persians would come the kingdom of bronze. Who would be this kingdom of bronze? Again, again, the Bible names that empire. In Daniel 8, verses 20 through 21, it mentions that the kings of the Media and Persia will be followed by the kingdom of Greece. The Bible names these empires by name. The first three, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. The fourth one is not named. It wasn't, I guess, necessary. God said, if you can, if you can post a fence and you got the three sticks already, you know where the fourth was going to go. Just look at history. Does anyone know what empire followed the Grecian Empire? Rome. All historic books, without question, agree that Rome followed Greece. And that is exactly what uh, the, the iron would be. Um, Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and it will break in pieces and crush all others. There's something unique about this iron kingdom, Rome. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 tells us, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who was the only empire that had Caesars? Rome, right? Rome, and something's happening right now that Luke, the gospel Luke is recording uh, there's a censor for tax purposes, and Joseph also went up to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Does anyone know the, na- the name of this child? Jesus was born under this empire. When Rome was, was manifest in his power historically, Jesus was born under that time. Had the Jews understood this prophecy, they would have understood that Jesus would not come in glory here. There had to be something else that had to happen. It would have prevented them from expecting a false Messiah, a Messiah that would try to establish an earthly kingdom, which is not what Jesus came to do. Just a little side note. Um, This um, metal um, piece of um, statue highlights the fact that Jesus was born during that time, and I want to spend some time with Jesus right now. Remember what the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the magicians told Nebuchadnezzar that the gods could not do, did not want to do. You guys remember what was that? What was that? They did not want to dwell with who? With humans, with flesh. The human race, they're not interested in us. But look at this. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Which translates... To what? God 
with us. The God of the Bible is not a God that the human race could invent. The God that is revealed in the scriptures, the human race could never have manufactured. The Babylonians actually express every attempt humans have tried to create and manufacture and invent gods, and all we end up doing is creating a replica of ourselves. Read the Iliad, read all the Greek mythology about how they describe their gods. It's like a big soap opera. It's like human history. There's betrayal, there's adultery, there's debauchery, there's immorality between the gods. And these Babylonians could say, these gods that we worship, they don't want to be down here. But the God of the prophecy of Daniel 2, this God would call himself Emmanuel when translated means God, a God that wants to be with who? With you. God wants to be with you. So let us continue. We left off with the legs of um, iron, which is Rome. Um, Then you have divided Rome, which begins in 476 AD to the present. Rome has not been united. Daniel 2.41 says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall, what what will happen to Rome? Which is powerful. You know, if I would have been making up this stuff, and I would have said, you know, the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of zinc. Metal, 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 metal. But this prophecy right here switches. There is no other metal, but rather a division. And a division in which there will be some weak parts and some strong parts, which is exactly what happened to the Roman Empire. It did not get conquered. It got broken. Which, (laughs) historically speaking, this is an amazing reality. This template is one of the most simple ways in which you and I can develop faith in the Word of God. You cannot have this level of accuracy about something that has been made up. And if this part of the Bible is true and accurate, it leaves great hope that the rest of it is just as true, just as real. So, whereas you sell the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. It will not stick together, which is what we see today. When we look at the news, in spite of all the attempts to unite Europe, it has not united. It has not glued itself. And actually, God said that that would happen in the book of Daniel. This is the political map of the, the, the um, European continent. They will not adhere one to another, just as iron does not mix with clay. I don't know if you can see that little symbol right there on his arm. Can you guess who that guy is? We can see his face. Hitler. Hitler, Hitler tried. Others have tried. They've tried with the euro, but you now, now we have Brexit, right? For centuries, for centuries, humans have tried to undo this prophecy. They thought Napoleon was almost at the brink of doing it. Some snowflakes came, paralyzed his armies. That was the end of that effect. Germany almost, the Russian winter, they could not endure it. The Allied forces came, did not happen. They have tried to fight against the word of God. And God's word says that the flowers fade and the grass withers away, but the word of God stands forever. And what God has declared would happen over a thousand years ago has still been maintained, though humans have tried. Atheistic humans, humans that are probably ignorant of this prophecy, have tried to unite Europe. Unfortunately, they would have saved themselves a lot of tax money if they would have just read the prophecy and said, nope, it ain't going to work. Let's try something else. 
Germany doesn't want the euro because uh, Portugal's economy is so weak and Greece's economy, there's so much corruption there. They don't, want, they don't want to be united because they are weak economies, weak armies, and they're strong economies. They're like, you're going to devalue us. So no, we don't want this united Europe. And they never will. They try through marriage, which is worse. So we have a history of pro- and prophecy going hand in hand. God declared that Babylon would be surpassed by Medes and the Persians, by the Greece, by Rome, and that Rome would not be conquered, but that Rome would rather be divided. There's not one dominant empire in, Rome, in Europe right now. So these last parts, in the days of these kings, these kings referring to what Rome became, and today we call this what part of the world? Europe. In the days in which Europe would be in existence, and Europe is there right now, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up what? A kingdom that will never be destroyed. That rock is the kingdom of God. And what God is describing to Nebuchadnezzar is not just your puny, tiny little Babylon is going to become a part of history. It's not just you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the entire human corrupted, exploitative, filled with sin history, it's going to pass away. And only one thing will remain. Nothing related or derived from that image. Something altogether different. A rock cut out from a mountain that come and blast that statue, blast all these exploitative, abusive systems that we've had in our planet. It will wipe them all away and establish a kingdom of righteousness, holiness, and love. And that kingdom will grow like a mountain and will cover how much of the earth? All of it. All of it. That has not yet happened. But the Word of God says that in the days of Europe, we're not that far. We're not that far. What event is that rock? It's an event that sometimes Christians lose sight of. The promise that He will dwell with them, that God would be with us. Jesus in John chapter 14 says, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. God wants to fulfill that promise. God wants to be with us. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Jesus understood the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. He knew what the outcome would be. He knew that His kingdom of righteousness, holiness, and love would outlast and would conquer all these earthly human empires, including Rome. Then the king will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the what? The kingdom prepared for you. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall stand for how long, my friends? Forever. Forever. Daniel that night was amazed at what God had given to Nebuchadnezzar and then revealed to him, this dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And this is an appeal to everyone that reads this. The appeal is, just as this was real to Nebuchadnezzar, then God wants it to be real for you tonight. 
He wants you to believe that his word are not just fables. He gives evidence as to how we could place our faith in a book that was written so long ago. Well, that book that was written so long ago has things to say for our days today. And what he has to say for us is we have a God that wants to be with us. The very first thing in the very first prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, that is the overarching theme. We have a God that wants to be with the human race. He will dwell with them. God wants to be with us. So the question of the prophecy is no longer does God want to be with us. Emmanuel, Jesus, answers that question. But the prophetic question that reaches throughout humanity for all history is a very painful question. Does the human race want to be with God? Do you want to be with God? There's a little boy named John whose dad left one day to go fight a war far away. John did not understand the little boy, all that his daddy was going to do. All he knew was that it was not certain how long it would be before his dad would return. And, And when they were saying goodbye, his daddy looked at John and said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. When, daddy? You'll know when you see me. Just wait for me. And John waved his dad goodbye, hugged him for a little boy. Daddies are just so special. John never stopped waiting and hoping for his dad to come, and we know that because when he went back to school, he told his teacher, my daddy's gone off to a war. He told me he's coming back. I have his address. Could we write letters to him? And so he got all his classmates on a weekly basis to be writing letters to his dad writing letters to his dad. His dad was in a place where he could not reply. So these letters were being sent, and there was no assurance whether these letters were being received or not. But John kept writing. School years, vacations, Thanksgiving breaks, Christmas breaks. As soon as school was on, John would be bugging his classmates, we need to write a letter to my dad this week. What are we going to say to him? What are we going to say to him? And then one day, in school. You know, Jesus says, I will come again. Some of us have given up. Some of us have been beaten up down here. Some of us have experienced so much heartache. Sometimes we wonder if he even hears our prayers. John never doubted that his dad received every single one of his letters. And all he had to hold on to were the words of his dad, My son, I will come back. 
That's all he had. And if a little boy can wait, and if a little boy can hope, and if a little boy can have faith in the words of his father, can you and I not have faith in the word of God, my friends, tonight? His kingdom will come. And he wants you to be a part of it. And tonight, his prophetic word has been spoken to encourage you to wait. Because when he comes every month, every week, every day, every hour, every minute of us waiting with faith will have been worth it. Today, we may shed tears of sadness, but on that day, we will shed, shed tears of joy and happiness unspeakable. When I saw that video, I saw myself. God searched for me, and He found me lost, all messed up in darkness. This God of heaven that spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through his word changed me. My greatest day, my greatest joy will be that day. And I think all of us will be like that little boy running, raising our hands and declaring, this is our God. We have waited for him. He's here to save us. Babylon has come and gone. So has Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. There's Europe. And tonight we've read, in the days of these kings, in the days of these kings, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will never pass away. Father in heaven, I praise you and thank you for your word. Thank you for Daniel chapter 2. Father, it makes me think of that poem that I read many, many years ago. Someone had a dream of footprints in the sand. And when the days were beautiful, there were two sets. But in the darkest moments, when the heart was breaking, and it seemed that it couldn't get any worse, this person looked back and only saw one set of footprints and turned to you and said, why did you leave me? Why did you leave me down here alone when I needed you most? Why did you abandon me? That poem concludes with these words, my child, my child. Those were my footprints. I was carrying you. Father, our hearts are stirred tonight. I don't know what brought my friends to this meeting. I'm just thankful they responded to the promptings of your spirit. They needed to be reminded that they are not alone. There's a God who keeps his promises. Though you long for that day when we will see you face to face, Tonight, you want us to know we are not alone. We are not. You are with us because you've sent Jesus. As we go deeper, I pray nothing will keep us 
from hearing your word being preached. So, Father, as my friends go each back to their home, grant them traveling mercies and remove any obstacles the enemy may want to put before them that they can come back and continue to hear about this marvelous, awesome God of prophecy who desires to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.